This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, I'm Dr. Helen Wang. I'm an assistant professor of psychiatry at the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine at UCSF, as well as the Neuroscape Center. So I'm going to talk about the science of measuring and improving meditation by guiding us through some meditation exercises and then describing the science I'm developing to help us measure what's happening. So meditation are exercises that come from ancient Buddhist practices that are increasingly used to cultivate health. Um, and people in Western countries have learned meditation practices to the point where about 14% of adults in the United States um, say they're practicing meditation for their health, and that's about 35 million people. So there's a really interesting cross-cultural exchange happening. Um, meditation practices have been adapted to treat mental and physical health conditions, including stress, depression, anxiety, pain, and cancer. And we're finding that there are moderate improvements. Um, the image shown here is um, an example of the cross-cultural dialogue happening between meditation practitioners and scientists to try to see if we can measure whether meditation can help health or not. So these studies are finding that there are moderate improvements, that some people do benefit, and on average, people are benefiting from learning these practices. However, meditation is not a cure-all, and different people respond in different ways. So how do we understand these processes and then optimize our treatments to help more people? So um, taking a step back, I'm going to talk about some broad um, changes that I think are happening with meditation. So with meditation, we typically close our eyes and start to cultivate internal qualities of attention. So I call this process slowing it down. We're observing what's happening in our bodies and our minds. We're bringing awareness. Uh, we're opening ourselves up to more information going on within, uh, within us, and we're starting to identify our experiences. Um, these skills are really cultivated by breath and body meditations and something called open monitoring. And then another piece is that we're bringing kindness to our experiences. And um, sometimes we can be harsh and critical of ourselves or other people. So this is kind of an antidote to that. By bringing kindness, we can honor all of our experiences and start to integrate the different pieces of ourselves. And we can also start to choose a better way of treating ourselves and other people. So by cultivating these inner qualities of attention, we're actually starting to be able to make changes to our outer world. Um, and this process can be cultivated through compassion meditation, uh, which I will be discussing. So as a scientist, we really have a measurement challenge to measure what's happening internally within people and then see, relating it to changes that are happening outside of people. And so the biggest issue is that when people close their eyes and meditate, we actually have no idea what's happening. And what may, may be surprising is that still at this point in 2020, we don't really know what's happening when people are actually closing their eyes and meditating. Instead, a lot of our measurements are what are, are what's happening downstream. So what's happening after people open their eyes, we measure self-reported stress. Um, we measure things like attention to other things. We measure emotion regulation. We measure social connection. 
Um, and also meditation practices involve a lot of different kinds of practices and a lot of different ways to practice, which I will describe more later. Um, I think what's most commonly known is when people sit down and close their eyes and attend to their breath. You can also bring a meditative state of mind to when you're walking, to when you're moving, like in yoga. Um, you can pay attention to more parts of your body and you can cultivate emotional qualities like compassion. So we think that meditation starts to uh, change our inner psychological world, like our attention, our thoughts, and our feelings. And then we think this will um, have even further downstream effects by changing our, what I call micro behaviors, our ability to have self-awareness, our everyday um, behaviors in self-care, taking our care of ourselves, like eating, exercising, and interacting with people in our lives. And then further downstream are larger global physical and mental health constructs like depression, anxiety, pain, stress, uh, which really is a conglomeration of all of our other experiences. There's also uh, wellness, so engagement with your life, enjoying your life, um, having purpose and relationship quality. So as you can see, um, as a scientist, we want to have really good measurements at each of these levels, which is quite a challenge. We, we want both good subjective measures, which means people report on their experiences, which is really important, and also good objective measures, which means um, that they're measured through another uh, um, an instrument or something else that, that isn't influenced by uh, their own subjectivity, and that's where the neuroscience comes in. So right now, meditation is still a black box when people sit down to practice we don't know what's um, going on in their minds moment to moment. So a lot of my talk will be about how we're, we're trying to solve that problem. So inherent in the philosophy to meditation is the idea that we can change our internal mental habits, which then can also change our neurostructure and function. So neuroplasticity is the idea that our brains can change with experience and practice and also just basic development. So our brains are one of the most responsive organs to the environment. Um, every experience we have, the brain is integrating that, processing and, and integrating that information. Our brains and biology are not fixed, and more and more research is starting to show that. Um, adults are able to generate new neurons or brain cells in the hippocampus uh, in humans. And brain changes are seen um, due to us learning new skills like motor training, such as juggling, musical training, cognitive training, like training attention, and now beginning to see with meditation training because meditation is also training attention as well as some emotional skills. So as scientists, how are we studying and measuring these changes? This slide is just to say that um, meditation practice does not have the same effect on all people. Meditation doesn't do anything to you. It's the person that um, decides to take the time to practice, and it's the interaction of what happens with that person's mind and the practice. So meditation isn't this magical thing that does that that ends up doing something to you. It's really about trying different practices, seeing if you like it, seeing if you're willing to keep practicing because it's like physical exercise. You have to make it part of your daily or weekly routine or it's not really going to have an effect. So um, I'm also trained as a clinical psychologist, and I really saw this uh, variability in the way people responded to meditation, the different kinds of practices they like. And this is actually a really encouraging story because 
when people first learn certain skills, they might think, I don't like it, I can't do it right, my mind wanders too much. But there really are many different kinds of practices you can try out and see what could work for you. So again, just emphasizing that meditation is um, training many different aspects of our attention, such as what we're focused on, like the object of attention, our meta-awareness or being aware of um, what our minds are doing, and then also being present-centered. And there are many more aspects as well. So again, meditation is not just one thing. There are many different practices, and it's um, training many different kinds of skills. So the first one I'll talk about um, is loving kindness and compassion meditation. Um, and compassion scientifically is defined as the feeling that arises when witnessing another suffering and that motivates a desire to help. Um, and compassion meditation can really be one route through which we can improve our relationships and that our uh, relationships are as important to our health as other common health behaviors, such as exercising, um, decreasing smoking, and decreasing drinking. So people with really healthy relationships, high-quality relationships, and having more kinds of relationships, so there's uh, your family, your friends, your work, and your community. So the more types of relationships you have, um, then improve your overall health quality, both your mental health, so things like depression, anxiety, and also your physical health, so that people that have higher quality relationships and more kinds of relationships actually live longer than people who don't. And on the flip side, we know that if people experience abuse or bullying or high conflict relationships, that can um, decrease mental health as well as physical health. So relationships are really important. Uh, practicing compassion, caring for ourselves and others can be one way for us to improve our relationships. All right. So I'm going to use both of these terms. Loving kindness meditation is practicing uh, wishing well-being for others, other people. And then compassion is just the flip side to that. So wishing well-being and caring for people who are um, going through suffering. And so I think we can all relate to these topics. Um, and so I'm going to lead us through a guided loving kindness meditation. We'll practice with someone we're close to and also um, take some time to practice some kindness and compassion for ourselves. So this will take about five minutes. Feel free to join or not. I'm going to close my eyes during this practice. You may keep your eyes open or closed, whatever's more comfortable for you. And we'll just bring to mind someone we feel close to. This can be a family member, a friend, a mentor or guide. It can be an animal or a pet. And this being can be currently living or deceased. It just should be someone that you feel a sense of connection and safety with. So you can bring their face to mind. You can imagine a time that you spent with them. And just notice how you feel in their presence.
You may feel a little more at ease, a little more calm. You might sense a slight smile on your face or a sense of warmth. And to cultivate a sense of kindness and compassion for this person or being, we can use some phrases. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. And if it's helpful, you can imagine a golden light going from your heart and extending to their heart to help give them a sense of kindness and compassion. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. And if your mind wanders, it's perfectly normal. Just gently bring your attention back to cultivating a sense of kindness and compassion. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. And to close off this meditation, we'll just end with also bringing ourselves into that circle of kindness and compassion, where we can also practice um, wishing ourselves a sense of well-being as well. So including ourselves with our loved one, may we be safe, may we be happy, may we be healthy, may we live with ease. when you're ready, you may open your eyes and return your attention to the room. And just note for yourself how you responded to that meditation. Some people connect to it um, pretty soon. Other people don't feel very much. Whatever your um, experience was is totally okay. And just reflect, is this something that 
um, I found engaging. I found it uh, that I my interest was um, maintained. And is this something I would be willing to practice again? Um, and you can integrate it into your own life however you want. Five minutes at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, during a walk. Um, and so I always encourage people to be creative and make meditation work for you within your own life. All right. So as a scientist, um, my job in graduate school was to try to measure this process and the outcomes of this meditation. So scientifically, compassion is described as the feeling that arises in witnessing another suffering and that motivates a subsequent desire to help. So that means there are three major components. There's the situation of witnessing suffering. There's the emotion uh, or motivation that occurs. So certain feelings that contribute to a desire to help. And that will probably make it more likely that you will be more likely to help once you encounter suffering out in the real world. Um, in the full compassion meditation, we had people practice. They practiced with a loved one themselves, a stranger and a difficult person, maybe someone they felt rejected by. And again, they envisioned that person's suffering. They practiced wishing them relief from that suffering. And they used phrases like, may you be free from suffering. May you have joy and ease. So I like to use the metaphor of um, when you practice with different kinds of people, it's like strengthening the compassion muscle. You start out with the lower weight of a loved one because it's relatively easy to feel compassion for someone you're close to and love. And then you move on to yourself and a stranger, someone you don't know very well, as well as a difficult person. And as you practice this, you'll find that it, it does get um, harder to feel the same level of compassion for someone you don't know or someone you actually have conflict with. So how does compassion meditation impact the brain and helping others? Our model was that people would practice compassion meditation, and then we thought it would actually impact real-world behavior. So we needed uh, good measures at both points. Uh, in the lab at the Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, they had um, already studied experts in compassion, people had many thousands of hours of practice, and we measured their brain activity using functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is this big magnet in the back here, and it uses magnetic energy to estimate levels of oxygen of blood in the brain. So where there's more oxygen, we think there's more brain activity going on. In the brain scanner, they heard sounds of people suffering, like screams, and the compassion experts had much more activity in a region called the anterior insula in their brain compared to controls that had very little experience. And the insula is um, a very interesting part of the brain that um, involves paying attention to bodily sensations and feelings and is generally involved in conscious awareness. So my question was, what about people like you and me, uh, people just from the community? If we practice just for two weeks, how does it change our brains and how does it change uh, how we treat others? So we had people practice online for two weeks to answer those questions. We measured their brain activity both before and after practice, and we also measured real-world pro-social behavior in an economic exchange task. We randomized uh, people from the Madison, Wisconsin community to learn either compassion meditation training or something called cognitive reappraisal training, which is learning to reinterpret the events in your life to feel less stressed. 
So both groups practiced 30 minutes a day on the internet for two weeks. Again, we measured their brain activity both before and after training. And this is really important because with this kind of design, it means we can track the exact changes due to compassion meditation versus the control group. We also measured pro-social behavior after the two weeks. So we had to develop a new task for measuring pro-social behavior. We um, borrowed from behavioral economics um, methods, and we called it the redistribution game. So in this game, there are three players. Player A gets $10, player B gets $0, and player C, the participant, gets $5. In the first move of the game, player A shares one out of $10 with player B, which is considered an unfair interaction, 10%. Player C watches this interaction, and for every dollar that player C spends, it can transfer $2 from player B A and redistribute it to player B, and that's our model of altruistic redistribution. So in this case, scientifically, we were measuring how much of your own personal resources you're willing to give up to help out a stranger that you meet on the internet. We had an anonymous online interface. People actually thought they were uh, doing a separate experiment. They signed a new uh, consent form. Um, this was to decrease um, people connecting the altruism game with the compassion study in their minds. So our first question was, does two weeks of compassion training actually increase altruistic behavior? And what we found is, yes, it does. The control group did spend some of their own money to help out the stranger, and the compassion group spent um, even more, significantly more money and almost twice the rate. And so it shows just two weeks of practice can make people more generous to strangers. This is really exciting. Uh, I also wanted to know what is changing in their minds and their brains that can lead to these changes. So in the brain activity task, we show them pictures of people suffering. We also show them neutral pictures of people doing everyday things. And the compassion group was told to um, evoke a sense of compassion towards these people. They could use the phrases, generate the feelings that they had practiced, where the reappraisal group reinterpreted the meaning of the images to feel less stress. So the reappraisal group could say, this woman is not actually in any pain and she'll, she feels fine. I showed this project to His Holiness the Dalai Lama in 2012. And when he saw the, the study, he called it effortful compassion. And he had a really good intuition about this. When we're first uh, learning new skills, it takes effort and concentration. Um, and this involves um, brain regions involved in emotion regulation. So in compassion, you're learning to increase your, your care and concern for someone else and also learning to decrease uh, distressed or negative feelings that might come up. And so this we thought would involve the prefrontal cortex, this frontal area in the brain, which is more evolutionarily developed in humans compared to other animals and is involved in thinking and planning and focusing. We thought it would decrease um, activity in the amygdala, which is involved in arousal and distress and is an evolutionarily older uh, region of the brain. We also thought it would increase activity in the insula, like we saw in the experts. And we thought we would see increased activity in the nucleus accumbens, this um, green region here, which is, in, is known as the pleasure one of the pleasure centers in the brain. And it's also responsive to when people give donations and uh, social interactions that people find rewarding. 
Um, so we thought that the, the emotion regulation parts of the brain would communicate with these emotion parts of the brain to start shifting the kinds of emotional responses people have. So we uh, looked at brain changes by taking the brain activity after training and subtracting the brain activity before training. And what we found is that the people who changed their brains the most in the prefrontal cortex, as well as the parietal cortex, which is a region involved in empathy or understanding the uh, mental states of other people, um, the more they were able to increase activity in those regions, the more they ended up giving in the redistribution game. So the people who changed their brains the most were actually uh, changed their outer behavior the most as well. And this is really encouraging. This only happened within two weeks. We also saw increased communication between the prefrontal cortex and the nucleus accumbens, the region involved in social reward and giving. So the more those two regions were communicating, the more people gave in the redistribution game. Um, and that was not true in the control group. We also asked, can compassion... Uh, be embodied? Can it actually change? So we're working on inner changes, but does it change how we respond to the outer environment? So we looked at visual attention in terms of eye movements within the brain scanner. Um, this uh, finding here shows that when we practice visual imagery, it activates very similar regions uh, compared to when we actually perceive something visual. So our inner imagination activates very similar brain regions as when we actually open our eyes and look at something. And this again shows us the power of our own minds and practices like visual imagery. So uh, when we showed them pictures of people suffering and also the neutral images, um, we looked at where their eye, eye movements went. Were they actually looking at um, the parts of the picture that are more distressing, or they are they looking at parts of the picture that are less emotional, like this tree? And what we could do is actually compute a percentage, the percentage looking time at being more willing to look at the negative parts of the images compared to the, the neutral parts of the images. And what we found is that the com people who learn compassion are actually more willing to look at other people's suffering, yet at the same time, it was correlated with a reduced amount of activation in the amygdala, which again is involved in arousal and distress. So they're actually able to visually attend to things that are distressing, yet have a less distressed response in the brain. So this is one way of decreasing stress, right? Learning the emotional skills to um, turn towards suffering, yet be less negatively reactive to it. So this meditation is freely available to download. Um, it's at the Center for Healthy Minds website. You can see the link there. And as of now, there's actually over 30,000 downloads across the world. So this is really exciting to think about how people are practicing compassion and being kinder to one another. And I've talked to um, people from around the world, from therapists, uh, people are adapting it um, to help people who have eating issues. They're adapting it to, to help decrease bias towards immigrants. So people are really taking this work and doing really amazing things with it. All right. So just two weeks of practice is enough to change activity in the brain as well as uh, outer behavior, how we treat other people. It changes regions in the brain involved in understanding the suffering of others, executive control and emotion regulation, and social reward and charitable giving. 
Um, this is a study I always like to mention. It's very clever. They were actually able to train people in empathy training compared to compassion training. So these terms are often um, intermixed and treated as the same, but they can be different. So empathy was defined as feeling with someone's pain, which means if you're feeling with someone, you're going to feel a similar amount of pain as the other person. So you're actually sharing their pain. Whereas compassion training was more focused on the caring and concern aspect, which we saw in the last study does activate reward networks. And that's what these um, researchers found, Olga Klemecki and Tanya Singer and colleagues. They found when people learned um, empathy training, um, they reported feeling more negative affect when seeing videos of people suffering. And then they had more activity in regions involved in processing negative emotions, such as the insula and anterior medial prefrontal cortex, this region over here. Whereas when the same people then learned compassion meditation training afterwards, they reported feeling more positive emotions when encountering people suffering and then activating networks involved in reward in the ventral striatum, a very similar region as what I just talked about. So it shows that these emotional qualities are able to be distinct and you can differentially train each one. I think it's really important also for um, people who encounter a lot of suffering in their lives, um, either through their jobs, like healthcare workers, um, or if you're a caregiver. And so to learn these practices may help people cope with distress they uh, are experiencing. Um, and so I like to say that this is that these practices can help break any negative cycles we may have, especially in the way we treat each other, right? So we all have these patterns where sometimes we're not as kind to ourselves and others. Something happens, say your boss um, yells at you, and then we feel different things like anger or shame or distress. And then if we react without awareness, uh, what we call habits or being on autopilot, Sometimes we can do things that are not helpful. So we might eat too much, drink too much, do drugs, sleep too much, too little, yell at people, shut down, whatever it is, it's all different for each of us. Um, and then that may lead us to make the situation worse or take it out further on ourselves or other people. And so by bringing more awareness to what's going on within us, um, especially kind awareness, that starts to shift the pattern and, and helps us see um, see our emotions, and then perhaps choose a better way to respond to them. So again, by slowing it down and bringing kindness, we can choose different ways of reacting and interacting with each other. Um, and just to note that a lot of these behaviors come from family patterns that pass down through generations and also through our cultural and historical um, histories and training so that that's why it can be so hard sometimes to change these habits. Like it's really easy to say, oh, we should all eat better and exercise more and treat each other more kindly. It's another thing to actually put in the work to start to change those habits. It's very difficult. Okay, so the next um, kinds of meditation I'll be talking about is a focused attention to the breath and body. This is probably the most uh, commonly known kind of meditation. And one way meditation may improve health is by cultivating what's called interoception or awareness and understanding of our bodily signals. So our bodies are actually giving us signals all the time, uh, like if we're hungry, if we're thirsty, if we're tired, if we're sad, happy, angry, etc. Um, and some of these signals can be quite subtle. And sometimes we don't notice them until they're quite strong, like 
we're really, really hungry or we're really, really tired and crash or we're really, really angry and, um, you know, yell at someone. And so uh, meditation can help us learn to tune into these singles signals so that we recognize them sooner and can act on them in a more healthy way. So the body really gives us signals about the state of our internal and our external environments. All right, so right here, there's a cat and a snake. Um, our brains interpret the meaning of these images. So I really love cats, so I would have a happy response to this cat, but someone who's really allergic to cats would be fearful of this cat, right? I don't like snakes so much, but someone else who might really be into reptiles might really love this snake. So again, it's all based on our interpretation of what our environment means. And based on how we interpret this, and this happens very quickly, um, our sympathetic nervous system gets activated. So if we're afraid, our pupils may dilate, dilate our uh, heart beats faster, our digestion starts to set, um, slow down. And it stimulates glucose release because we have to use resources to run away. Um, and it also um, changes hormone production. So there's, as you can see, just quite a lot of bodily changes from changes in our environment. Um, and again, meditation helps, helps us to become more aware of what's happening in our bodies to try to make good decisions about what to do. Um, so emotional awareness um, can occur through bodily awareness. So there's what's going on in our minds, kind of the thoughts, um, our feelings, our interpretations of what's going on. There's also what's going on in the body, and people already have a sense of this. So in this study, they asked participants to color in parts of their body that feel more activated or less activated, depending on the emotion. And as you can see, each different kind of emotion has a different pattern of activation and deactivation in the body. So especially here's a, an extreme case where love is, there's a lot of activation all throughout the body, whereas depression is almost the opposite or deactivation in a lot of the body. And so again, um, some people are not as aware of these signals. Again, if we're not aware of something, it can unconsciously drive our behavior. If someone's not aware of the, that they're feeling angry or sad or upset, it tends to, to come out in unconscious ways. And so in my clinical clinical experience as a psychologist, a lot of what I did was bring people's meditative mindful awareness into this main core of their body, their face, their throat, their lungs, their breathing, their heart area, their stomach, um, the gut. And so, and you can see uh, where people color in, that's often where uh, the, the emotional signals are occurring. And paying attention is also related to happiness and mind wandering can be related to unhappiness. So in this study, they had, uh, they texted people through their smartphones and asked them if they were paying attention or if they were mind wandering. It turns out 47% uh, of the time people were mind wandering. So it's really common. Um, people were less happy when they were mind wandering and, um, so that's just showing that people can be more happy when they're focused and then less happy when they're mind wandering. And again, meditation helps us recognize when we are mind wandering and then to refocus. Okay, so let's um, do a practice together so you can get a sense. Um, I'm going to have us focus on our breath in a non-judgmental way. And I'll also invite attention to other parts of the body, especially if the breath is not um, available to you right now or it can cause some discomfort for some people. 
So again, I'm going to close my eyes. You may close your eyes it's, or keep them open. It's up to you. And let's bring our awareness gently to the sensations of our breath. And just notice where you feel your breath in your body. This can be at your nostrils. The back of your throat. Deeper into your lungs. Can be the expansion and the movement of your chest or your belly. And again, just notice the sensations. Notice um, any pressure. any tingling, any warmth or coolness. Notice how deep or shallow your breath is and your breathing, breathing pace and rhythm. And see if you can attend to the sensations with a sense of openness, non-judgment, and kindness. If the breath isn't comfortable for you, you may choose a different other area of your body, such as the feeling of your back against your chair, maybe sensations in your hands or face, whatever is available to you right now. You're noticing any tingling, any pressure. Any movement, warmth or coolness, and you might notice your mind begins to wander, thinking about what's for dinner or what you need to do. It's perfectly normal. Just bring your attention back to the sensations of your breath or another part of your body. You may also take this time just to check in with yourself. How is my body feeling? 
Are there any messages it's trying to tell me? And when you're ready, you may open your eyes and return to the room. Okay. So um, for most people, they're able to sense um, a sensation in their body. And for everyone, they also notice when their mind wanders. So that's very, very common. Just because your mind wanders doesn't mean you're bad at meditation. It means you became more aware of what your mind was doing, uh, which we call meta-awareness. And it is a main skill that we're learning through meditation. So that's the good thing is that any experience is okay. And it's learning um, to treat each experience with less judgment and to be able to tolerate all the experiences that happen. All right. Um, so I'll talk about how we're trying to measure this process. Again, when people close their eyes, we actually don't know what's happening moment to moment when they're meditating. You can be on your breath. You can be thinking about dinner or world peace. You can fall asleep. Um, and so you can see the different mental states are, are varying and fluctuating. However, in standard neuroscience procedures, what we do is actually average everyone's brain activity together so that this one picture of the brain actually represents all of the different mental states within each person and then average with maybe 20 to 30 to 50 other people. And so I think with something like meditation, which is so um, subtle and varying, we need better approaches. So what does this have to do with stress? Sometimes it's not clear why meditation actually helps with stress. So I like to explain this as um, stressful thoughts can be like a runaway train, right? And the train is, we're inside the train and the train is driving us and we're not in control of where it's going. That's how it can feel sometimes. So something bad might happen and you might think about that bad thing that happened and then you have thoughts, I'm not doing well in my life and more bad things are going to happen. Um, when we think about things that happened in the past, um, in a negative way that can lead to depression, um, thinking that you're not doing well in your life is a form of self-criticism and then worrying about the future, the more bad things will happen can lead to anxiety. And so all of those kinds of thoughts activate your stress system. Even if you're just sitting here, but you're on the runaway train of the negative thoughts, you have activated your stress system. Right? And these thoughts have a way of feeding each other um, and going into a negative loop. And I, I imagine that a lot of us have been having those kinds of experiences lately, given the stress of the pandemic. So meditation can help interrupt this runaway train. Again, we're learning to focus on present moment feelings in the body. So bringing ourselves out of the past and the future and into the present and into the body, which is always happening right now and bringing a sense of non-judgment and kindness as an antidote to potentially self-critical thoughts. Meditation can activate what we call experiential mode, uh, which involves the insula and paying attention to our body. So this is one region of the insula right here, as well as regions involved in focused attention like the prefrontal cortex. At the same time, it can also quiet the narrative mode or our thinking mind that can sometimes run away with us, that involves the medial prefrontal cortex, which is an image right here. Um, and these brain images were taken from people who learned eight weeks of meditation skills. 
All right. So here's some, some more images of the default mode network, this runaway train that can um, take us places we don't want to go. It's activated when you think about memories, again, things in the past, and also when we're thinking about the future. And again, if these have a negative tone, they can lead to depression and anxiety. So we just need to shift the tone a little bit to be a little more non-judgmental, even more uh, hopeful and positive, and change these narratives we're thinking about. In this other study, they had people actually press a button when they noticed that their mind had wandered and it activated regions involved in conscious awareness or meta-awareness, which I mentioned, being aware of our own minds. Before they became aware of mind wandering, they were actually mind wandering, activating the default mode network. And at other times, they were focused to the breath, so activated regions involved in sustained attention and shifting attention back to the breath. So again, even within one meditation um, session, they're practicing at least four different mental states, and it doesn't make as much sense to average everything together. So we can interrupt the runaway train by practicing meditation skills that makes you aware of where am I heading? Do I want to be on this kind of runaway train? Maybe I can slow this down by paying attention to my body where you become the conductor of the train rather than a passenger um, being taken away on the train. Uh, taking this metaphor further, you can get off at the next stop. So meditation gives you more moments of awareness where you can choose to get off this particular train and maybe try to get on a different train. And ask yourself, what train do I want to go on? What kind of mental states do I want to be spending my time in? And so studies will show in general when people are focused uh, in meditation, they're activating regions involved in focused attention, executive networks, and also in the insulin body awareness. Again, it's averages over many different people. And as we know, um, we're actually ha- each of us are having different fluctuating moments during meditation. Um, we also have different brains. So this, um, this one average brain actually masks the fact that all of our brains have a different structure and a different uh, pattern of brain activity. So in this meditator versus control, you can see that their brains have a different shape. But in standard analyses, we actually average their brains to fit a standard average brain. This is uh, 152 brains from Canada. And then we come up with a new brain picture that looks more like this average brain. Um, A lot of studies do this, and we've found a lot of interesting results from this approach. However, it makes the assumption that activity in the same regions across different people serve the same function. Basically, all of our brains uh, look and act the same. And this is just not true. You can see this in talking to different people. We all have different minds and experiences. And so I decided to adopt an approach that treats all of our brains as unique, um, where we don't have to average them together. And at the same time, we can capture all these different uh, mental states during meditation. So I call these multivariate uh, approaches. And this way, uh, brain activity is treated unique like a fingerprint um, or brain fingerprints, right? Um, Like a fingerprint that can uniquely identify us, we each have our own brain structure and activity that can uniquely identify certain experiences we're having. Um, This is the same kind of pattern pattern recognition or machine learning or artificial intelligence applied to recognize fingerprints and faces. We can also apply that to uh, brain data. In fMRI world, this is called multivoxel pattern analysis developed by Jim Haxby in 2001 and Ken Norman. Um, And so it's been around for quite a while now. So we developed a new brain task called the Embody Task, 
um, to measure the different mental states that are happening during meditation based on each person's unique brain data. Again, this is um, well established in the field to use these kinds of techniques. So the first thing we're going to try to assess is what people are paying attention to. When are you on your breath? When are you not on your on your breath? When are you mind wandering? And when are you on this, this thought train? Right. So we can use this pattern recognition technology to recognize when people are on the breath or engaging in interception and when they're mind wandering or thinking their thoughts. We recruited eight meditators from the Bay Area who had at least five years of experience practicing 90 minutes a week, uh, compared to eight controls who are age and gender matched to them. Um, the age range for this first study was 25 to 65, and they were mostly healthy. And so how does the computer learn um, what their mental states are? So there's the first part of the experiment, we call it the internal attention task. We tell people when to focus on their breath. So we give them an, an instruction um, through uh, the auditory channel, pay attention to your breath. And we ask them to focus on their breath for a short period of time, 20 to 30 seconds. Then we tell, say, you can stop now. And that's when we think mind wandering will be engaged. We tell them that they can think about the past week or think about the next week, or think about what's going on right now in the experiment. And that's being on the thought train, or uh, the scientific term is called self-referential processing. We also tell them to pay attention to their feet, so a different part of the body, and to pay attention to the loud sounds in the brain scanner. And so although their eyes are closed the whole time, every 16 to 50 seconds, we're changing the instruction of what they pay attention to, that the computer can slowly gather data about what each mental state looks like. And so the first scientific question we had was, can the computer actually recognize these five different internal attention states? And what this graph shows is, yes, it can. Every single mental state was recognized well above chance. So there were five uh, mental states. Chance level would be 20%, meaning if the computer could not tell the difference between the different mental states based on the brain data, it would just guess at chance and it would be at 20% accuracy. Um, what the computer found was between 40 and 50% accuracy for every single mental state. So it could recognize when people were on their breath, when they were mind wandering, when they were thinking about themselves, when they were attending to their feet, and when they were tending to the sounds in the scanner. And this is really quite amazing because their eyes were closed the whole time. The only difference is what they were internally focusing to. And we could look at the how, com how the computer, computer could recognize the brain patterns at each person at the individual level. And what we found is that all eight meditators had recognizable brain patterns, whereas six out of eight controls could be recognized, but two of them could not. So that probably means when we told them to focus on their breath, um, they didn't have enough experience to do it consistently enough. These are the individual brain patterns for each mental state. So as you can see for the breath, each meditator has a different pattern across the whole brain, right? For mind wandering, same thing. Each person has a different, unique signal. And when they were thinking about themselves, again, each person has a different, unique signal. Um, just highlighting how by capturing each person's uniqueness, we can actually be more accurate instead of averaging everything together and losing a lot of information. 
So the second part of the task is we had people meditate on their breath for 10 minutes, and we could actually use the data from the first part of the experiment to estimate what they were focused on during meditation. All right, opening up the black box. So for, each, for every second when they're meditating, the computer asks, does this brain pattern look more like the breath or more like the mind, mind wandering or more like thinking about yourself? And it makes a decision mathematically based on the data. So again, it's an objective way of estimating what people are focusing on moment to moment when they're meditating. And what we found, here's meditator one. You can see they start out on their breath and then they start mind wandering. Then they start thinking about their life, maybe what's for dinner. They return back to the breath. They start mind wandering. They start thinking about their life. Then they recognize, oh, my mind has wandered. So they come back to the breath, et cetera, et cetera. And so now we have data that, that maps more closely to what we know meditation feels like when we practice it, right? It's not one thing. It's um, coming in and out of awareness. Here's meditator two. They also start on their breath and then they start to mind wander. They think about their life. They come back to the breath. So in that sense, it's the same as meditator one, but it, it's happening at different rates, right? When they're on their breath is different compared to the other meditator. This also worked for most of the controls. You could see when they're on their breath or not. And what's really cool is we can then quantify when they're on their breath, when they're mind wandering, and when they're um, thinking about themselves and turn this these numbers into percentage. What percent of the time were you on your breath when you meditated for 10 minutes? Again, there's no measure that can give us an accurate assessment of that, which is quite unbelievable, but it's true. So we use this data to compute novel metric of, metrics of attention during meditation. We could compute the percent time in each mental state, how many different events, and the average duration and variability. What we found across 14 people in the first study is that uh, people are paying attention more to their breath, uh, longer compared to engaging in mind wandering or self-referential processing. That's what we would expect during meditation, but it's not necessarily true. Sometimes you sit down to meditate and you're mostly in mind wandering. That's okay too. For this group of people, they were able to focus a little bit longer on the breath compared to the other mental states. Um, they fluctuated between the different mental states uh, around the, the same across the mental states. However, when they were on their breath, they somehow remembered to stay there longer. So they focused longer on their breath when they were on their breath compared to mind wandering. So overall, we think they were engaging more with the breath. Uh, right now, we're still working on um, how do we know they're on their breath? How do we know if these numbers are meaningful? And that will still take a few more years of work. One thing we did look at is um, at their, their lifetime history of meditation practice. So we did like a 30-minute interview with each person. And um, through this interview, we, we computed how many hours have you practiced in your whole life? And it's just an estimate. But what we found is that the people who, pra who were practiced the most in their life were able to focus longer on their breath in the brain scanner. Um, and think about their lives less. So it, it does seem like with practice over time, you're, you are able to focus longer on your body and less on the runaway train thoughts, right? Um, the first version of the study is available online on a website called BioArchive. It's called Focus on the Breath. Brain Decoding Reveals Internal States of Attention During Meditation. And we hope to get this published this year. 
So our study has shown that machine learning can be applied to brain data to identify and track mental states during meditation, which represents our experience uh, more closely to reality. And that these metrics we're coming up with might provide a valid estimate of what people are focusing on, but more work is needed. Um, this approach does allow for more diversity and inclusivity. Uh, we work with the East Bay Meditation Center with diverse meditation practici practitioners. This approach worked in all 15 meditators we studied. Um, by having an individualized approach, we can also be more inclusive of people who are thought to have different brains, brain structure and function. This includes people who are left-handed, people of neuro neurological disorders, and mental health conditions, and also taking uh, medications that impact brain activity. So we're really kind of stretching the boundaries of, of who, we, who we can include and measure in the studies. All right. Um, so with more research, we hope to have unprecedented power in understanding how meditation improves health and well-being, and then be able to uniquely tailor meditation practices to certain people and populations. So maybe some people focus better on the breath, or some people focus better on loving kindness. Um, and we should be able to adapt and work with how people's minds are responding. All right. And I always like to make this point, make meditation work for you. There's no wrong way to meditate. You pick something to focus on that you enjoy focusing on. Um, try to find a time in the day. I like to um, couple meditation practice with something you do every day anyway. So I really love coffee. So when I'm drinking my coffee, I bring more mindful uh, awareness and attention to the taste and the feel of the coffee. Or you can do it as you're walking your dog or when you take your morning walk or jog, you can take five minutes for some intentional meditation practice. And I like to say you should practice with things that come naturally to you, things you enjoy paying attention to. Don't force yourself to focus on the breath if you don't like it. First, start with things that work for you. And then to expand and grow, then you start to practice the things that are more difficult, like a difficult person or things like conflict or um, pain. And as you bring your practice to things that are more difficult, that's where you really learn resilience and growth and um, I think gain more skills. All right. So thank you all for listening. Um, thanks to all of my mentors and collaborators at the UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Medicine, at the Center for Healthy Minds, at UW-Madison, at the East Bay Meditation Center, and at the UCSF Neuroscape Center. And I'm open for questions now. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.